Well, it's good to see all of you. Um, I've had the privilege of uh, preaching here before in the past, but not for some, some time, obviously. Um, the last time I was here, I was serving as a pastor at Christ the King in Cambridge, and as Tim mentioned, um, since then I've actually had a couple of transitions. Um, I was able, by God's grace, to launch a uh, Christian study center called the Octet Collaborative, to serve MIT, which is my alma mater. Um, that was kind of a side project of mine for a while, and um, in 2019, uh, the Lord provided uh, the opportunity to actually get that off the ground. And then was amazingly gracious in providing as we actually launched in the middle of a global pandemic, which is not the way you draw these things up. Um, I've also transitioned from uh, pastoral ministry in Cambridge to our sister congregation in Newton, so I'm kind of splitting my time between those, those two things. Um, but it's, it's a real joy uh, to be with you uh, again. Um, the passage that I'm going to be preaching from this morning is Psalm 78. Uh, just the first 20 verses, Psalm 78 is a long psalm, uh, it's one of these long historical psalms. Um, most of it recounts uh, Israel's faithlessness in the wilderness, their constant complaining and grumbling. It does end on a high note uh, as God lifts up uh, David, uh, a shepherd, uh, to guide them. Uh, but we'll be looking at just the first 20 verses. Let me read this to you now. So this is Psalm 78, 1 through 20. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zon. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud. And all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he, give, can he provide meat for his people? This is the word of the Lord. 
One of the things that I like to do when preaching um, just a, a single sermon, you know, not part of, this, uh, of a series, is to go to the Psalms. Um, you know, the Psalms are good for that. Uh, a lot of them, they're not in any, they're somewhat structured, but um, it's good to, to dive into one. And I, and, I, and I love spending time in the Psalms. One of the things that I love about coming here um, is your tradition of spending a lot of time in the Psalms. Um, with your singing in particular, but throughout the service. I remember years ago um, when our music director, I think, got in touch with you, Tom, um, asking uh, you know, for, for help in setting more psalms to music, and we began to use that at, at Christ the King. Um, the psalms really are a treasure. Um, if you're not in the habit of spending time daily in the psalms, I would really commend that to you. I mean, think about what we have in the psalms. Um, In the Psalms, God has given us divinely revealed emotional language. Um, You know, the Bible doesn't just consist of propositions of what's true. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of truth in the Bible. Um, But there's so much more than that. Since we've been commanded to love the God, not only with all of our mind, but with all of our hearts, um, our emotions matter. And the Psalms... Um, give us words with which to bring our emotions before God. The whole spectrum of them. Not only our joys um, and, our, and our thanksgivings, but also our sorrows, uh, our pain, um, our grief, our lament, um, our frustrations. And, and this is really important in the middle of our culture. We live in a culture that it, it doesn't really know what to do with emotions. You know, on the one hand, um, much of our culture... Um, wants to be supremely rational and guided by logic. But at the same time, there are certain emotions that our culture tells us um, have to be obeyed. There are certain pleasures which must be sought at all costs. There are certain forms of suffering which must be escaped um, at all costs. Um, And when you live like that, you give your emotions tremendous authority over your life. Um, the Psalms give us this somewhat radical countercultural idea um, that our emotions are important, they matter, um, but they don't have that kind of authority. They can actually be spoken to. They can be preached to. Um, Psalm 42 and 43 have that wonderful refrain, Why are you downcast, my soul? Remember God and his goodness. Um, What I want to draw out of just these 20 verses at the beginning of Psalm 78 is this this idea um, that the stories that we tell ourselves um, that have deep, meaningful, emotional resonance with us, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, they really matter because they point to our hope. They point to where we ultimately set our our hope, our sense that we're going to be okay that things will turn out all right. And that, that in turn, shapes everything that we do. Um, You know, if you ask what it means to be a Christian, um, a Christian is not only one who believes um, that the Bible is true. Certainly it does mean that. It does mean to believe um, that we are created by God, uh, to believe Uh, that we are created for relationship with him, that he is holy, that on the other hand we are not, 
to believe that we are sinners in need of a Savior, uh, to believe that he sent Jesus to be that Savior. Um, But at the end of the day, to be a Christian is not only to believe all of those things, but to set our hope in them. To say, my hope rests in the fact that I have a Savior, that Jesus is that, is that Savior. The Christian is one who has set his or her hope on Christ and who remembers what God has done and who, therefore, because of that, their lives are changed. Because of that, we can live lives of obedience. So let's take a look at this, at this, at this psalm. It begins by reminding Israel... Um, of this importance of, of telling our children, telling ourselves and telling our children the stories. It's exactly, I really appreciated uh, what Tim drew out of, um, out of Deuteronomy 6, this importance of, of the stories um, that we tell. Stories are, are tremendously powerful things. Um, they are evocative. Uh, they, they change us. You, you might have heard the... Um, the, the legend, I, I don't think this is true. I haven't been able to track down anything that says that this is definitely true. But there's a legend that Ernest Hemingway entered a contest. Uh, some newspaper put out a contest uh, for the best story uh, of only six words. Or maybe it was like, you know, the best, you know, the shortest possible story. And Hemingway supposedly entered a story of only six words. You know what it was? The story was for sale, baby shoes never won. Six words. And there's a whole story there. And it just grabs you. Right? If you're, if you're a belly. I, I have a hard time. I've told that story enough times that I can tell it without tearing up. But not really. Like, it, it really grabs you. Right? Stories are powerful things. They change us. They form us. They engage not only our minds, but our imagination. The stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and where we came from really matter. Um... There was a, uh, an article in this, in this past week's Economist about the current um, political tussle um, over the teaching of critical race theory in schools, right? This has become a political issue. There are states that have banned it. There are teachers' unions that have endorsed it. Um, the, the article made the interesting point. Let me just read you one, uh, one paragraph from this. It said the contest over how to tell the national story may seem new, But it's part of a century-old fight. The battle began once schooling became compulsory in all states in 1918. In the 1920s, David Muzzy, a historian, was branded a traitor for his textbook, An American History, which, according to critics, undermined the American spirit with pro-British distortions of the Revolution and the War of 1812. So the point of this is that this is an old fight a fight over how to, teach the, how to teach history. And the reason that this fight is taking place, no matter where you land on whether critical race theory should be taught or banned or acknowledged or what, no matter where you are in that debate, everybody in that debate agrees that it matters. It matters how you teach the history. It matters how you teach who we are. Because our understanding of our history informs our aspirations, and our potential. It informs our sense of what are our duties and our obligations. It shapes who we are. And this uh, is something that we see right here in Scripture. 
um, as, as Psalm 78 begins, saying, we will not hide these stories from our children. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Um, you know, you can ask yourself, what are the stories that have formed you? What are the stories that tell you who, who you are? And where did they come from? Did you craft them yourselves, or did you receive them from somewhere? Um, theologian Stanley Hauerwas says that one of, the, one of the definitions of a modern person, uh, he says that modern people are people who believe that we have no story except the story we told ourselves when we had no story. Um, and we call this freedom. The only problem with that kind of freedom is that it's kind of nonsense. Um, it just doesn't work. You know, you can't just craft it completely out of nothing. All of us have received in some way our sense of who we are and our story uh, from somewhere. And again, to be a Christian is to say that the gospel in some sense is our story. Right? So the gospel is not only the story that the church tells, it is that, but it's also the story that tells the church who we are, that, that forms us. Um, one of the things I love about that passage that, that Tim read this morning, um, let me just remind you, this is Deuteronomy 6.20. Um, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Um, which, which, by the way, that could mean, that could mean one of two things. You, you can imagine your son coming to you and say, like, what do these rules mean? Right? I understand we're supposed to do all this stuff, but what does, it, what does it mean? I don't understand. Or he might be asking, you know, what is the meaning of this in the sense of why do I have to do all this stuff? Right? Um, but the answer to that question, if you go on, when your son asks you what is the meaning of all these rules, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. It's a story. The answer to the question, what is the meaning of the law, is a story about what God has done. Um, we see this play out in these next four verses of Psalm 78. And, and, and this is where I really want to draw your attention. Um, let me just actually just draw your attention just to... Um, yeah, verses, verses, six and, verses 6 and 7. So, so we're going to tell our children the story... Why? Verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, but arise and tell them to their children. And then, and then listen to this. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do you hear the order of that? They set their hope in God first. They don't forget what God has done. And then... Therefore, they can keep his commandments, right? It's not we keep his commandments and then hope that God will take notice of that and treat us well. It's we remember what he has done. And with our hope set firmly in that, then we're able to obey. Why would that be? Why would, why would that be the order? Why would it be where your hope is set and what you remember leads to uh, leads to obedience. Um, what does it mean to set our hope in something? 
right? We, we've, we've all set our hope in something. We've all set our hope in some aspect of our life, something that we have, something that we are. Um, maybe it's not something that we have yet, but it's something we're striving towards, right? It's the answer to the question, if I have X, or if I am X, then life is okay. Then life has meaning. Then I can get up in the morning. I can go on. Or if I have the possibility of reaching X, right? Um, the Bible talks about this as being the definition of, of what it is to have an idol. About what it is to worship something other than God. Um, to set our hope on something else. Most of us have a tendency to set our hope in things like um, our wealth or our job, our status in that job. Um, it could be our family. It could be a relationship. And, and if you notice, at least that list of things, none of those things are inherently bad things. Those are all good things. Those are all good things that God made and that he gave us. They are good things, but they make terrible gods. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the most dangerous idols, the ones that prey on our hearts the easiest and for the longest amount of time and with the most damage, are the very best things that God has made, precisely because they're so good, because they're so rich. I mean, things like sex and power um, and work. These are really good, rich gifts that can lead us on for a long time, promising ultimate meaning um, and ultimate significance. But if we set our hope in those things, sooner or later, at some point, at some point, there will be a conflict in your life between hanging on to that thing and obeying God. And where you have set your hope is going to win. Um, that's how it leads to disobedience. Let me give you an example. Um, some of you guys have probably heard of this, this Varsity Blues um, scandal, this college admissions scandal. This is a, a couple years ago now, um, you know, where parents uh, of means were, provide, uh, were, were paying you know, huge amounts of money uh, to a, a college admissions counselor named Rick Singer. Um, and he was, um, you know, he was altering test scores. Um, I mean, some of what he was doing was just crazy. He was, he, was, he was actually putting together portfolios for students that made it look as though they played sports they didn't play so that they could get recruited to a team that they could never be on so as to get ad ad admitted to the school. Um, this was going on at uh, USC. It was going on at Stanford. Um, you know, it ended up you know, costing coaches and administrative directors their jobs. Um, some of these parents have spent time in jail. Um, why were they doing that? Like, why would they cheat in that way? Well, on some level, they loved their kids. They, they made some horribly misguided decisions, but they wanted their kids to succeed. They wanted their kids to thrive. They had, in some way, set their hope on the success of their children, and they were willing to cheat. For the sake of that, for the sake of that hope, um, and 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 we need to realize that all of us are liable to be taken in, you know, by maybe not Rick Singer and maybe not that that temptation. Um, but look, we have an adversary. 
Um, the devil is lying to us, and he is better at lying to us than Rick Singer. Um, you read these stories uh, about the Varsity Blues thing, and it was very clear that Rick Singer was really good at playing on the fears of these parents. He was telling them, um, you know, everybody does this. Um, if you don't do something like this, your children have no chance. All I'm doing is helping you level the playing field. He was playing on their fears. Um, the devil is much better at that than Rick Singer is. Um, in the garden, what did he do? He came to Adam and Eve. He got them to focus on the one tree that God had said not to eat from. In the midst of like a whole garden, they had everything, right? And he got them to focus on this one tree. He got them wondering, is God holding out on you? Why wouldn't he let you eat that one tree? What's so good about that tree that he won't let you have it? He got them thinking, this God doesn't really love us. Won't really take care of us. And if that's true, then I'm on my own. And I have to make my own way. I have to see for myself. Um, the reason that fear leads us towards disobedience when there's a conflict between what we set our hope in and, and God's word. Um, fear of losing that thing makes us think that we're in exceptional circumstances. It, it gets us thinking, you know, surely God wouldn't ask that of me. That's too important. Surely he wouldn't take this. Surely he doesn't expect me to obey him if I'm going to lose this relationship or this job uh, or this money or whatever it is. Um, to set our hope in God means believing that there's no separation between his loving character and his word. That his word never conflicts with his love for us. That our happiness never lies down the path of disobeying him. That's what it means to set our hope in God. Um, Let's look at these last ten or so verses of, of this psalm and see how this actually plays out. Um, as I said, the rest of the psalm describes a lot of how it did not play out in Israel's history. They were constantly forgetting, um, you know, despite Deuteronomy 6 that we just read, which repeatedly said, do not forget. They were constantly forgetting. Um, most of these verses from, uh, from 9 to 20 are just recounting events. They're going back to, like, these are the works of God that the people aren't supposed to forget. These are works that would have been recounted um, every year uh, at different festivals to remind the people of what God has done, to renew the covenant. Um, it ends with the people asking this, this question, which is where I want us to, to, to land this morning. They're asking it kind of sarcastically, right? So verse 19, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And then they even do remember some things he's done. Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. But can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Can God really prepare a table in the wilderness? Let's think about that question. Have you, have you ever spent time in the wilderness? Um, I have not. Okay, I have never been in the real wilderness. Uh, a few weeks ago, I went camping. Uh, this was car camping. This was not wilderness. 
Um, it was a few weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, uh, the week leading up to 4th of July was like oppressively hot for three days and then it rained for four days. So there was a lot of character building happening on this camping trip. Um, it was really fun, but it was not the wilderness. Um, Saturday evening of that week, the forecast was just for nonstop, I mean just nonstop torrential rain, you know, from about 4 p.m. until past midnight. And so I'll admit, we gave up. Um, it was us and several other families, and we all gave up and took the kids to Bertucci's uh, at the Mall of New Hampshire. We were, we were up, in, up near Manchester. Um, so this, this camping trip, this was not the wilderness. Like, that part of it was in an air-conditioned mall. Um, but even the rest of it, you know, the, the wilderness, real wilderness, when you get out there, the wilderness is defined, you know, if you think about, like, your basic needs, food, water, shelter, the wilderness is... Uh, the place that takes those things from you very quickly. And if you don't know what you're doing, you will die. It is no joke. The wilderness will kill you very quickly. But in Scripture, again and again and again, the wilderness is where God takes his people to teach them who they are. And, and maybe more importantly, to teach them who he is. Um, it's where he took Israel and fed them with manna. You know, as, as it was described in, in Deuteronomy 6, 6 um, this morning. Um, it's where he took prophets like Elijah. Um, and, and, then, and then it's where he takes Jesus. Right? In Matthew 4, after Jesus is baptized, it says the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. And this is real wilderness. Okay? Um, he does not have food. He is hungry out there. Um... And do you remember what we see happen? In some senses, what we see happen with Jesus in the wilderness is the exact reversal of what took place in the garden. I mean, it's the complete opposite. So in, in the garden, it's a garden. It's not the wilderness. They have everything that they need, and yet Satan gets them to focus on the one thing that they don't have. Jesus really is out in the wilderness, really does not have what he needs. Um... And Satan comes and tempts him to turn stones into bread, to amass power for himself, right? And what does he do? Well, it, it's a pretty familiar story, so a lot of you will know. He quotes scripture. He says, he says no, he takes God's word and he says, I'm not going to do this because it says in God's word. Um, but he's not just quoting any scriptures. He's specifically quoting Deuteronomy 6. And one time Deuteronomy 8 over those three, over those three passages. It's exactly, it's the passage that we read from this morning. It's precisely the passage where God is telling his people, remember, remember what I have done for you. Remember how I have cared for you in the past. And keep remembering because it's going to be hard in the future. Don't forget. Keep remembering. That's what Jesus quotes. Um, He's not just quoting scripture. He's calling to mind a memory. He's calling to mind a cultural memory that, that was supposed to be the possession of the whole people of Israel, but, but Israel constantly lost it. So you, you look at Israel's story. And it starts with one man, Abraham, and then it, and then it, it balloons out to a, a family and a people and a, and a huge nation. But by the time we get to Jesus, it's all come back to one. It's come back to this one man in the wilderness. This one man being faithful in a way that Adam was not, that Eve was not, in a way that the people of Israel were not. 
in a way you and I are not. Right? I mean, no one in this room has a perfect record of remembering what God has done, of setting our hope in him, in obeying all of his commandments. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has forgotten. Every one of us has set our hope somewhere else and disobeyed God in order to to hang on to it. To be a Christian is not to say I have a perfect record. It's to say I know someone who does. I know this one who was in the wilderness and kept his hands clean and kept his heart pure and did not lift his soul up to what was false. And Jesus kept obeying through the rest of his life and it led him all the way to the cross. It led him all the way to the point where he literally gave up everything. He gave up his very life. Let me give you one last piece of encouragement about this table. Um, It's so encouraging to me that the question is, can God spread a table in the wilderness? It's not. The question is not, is God going to bring us through the wilderness and there will be a table waiting for us when we get out, right? It's it's not, is he going to deliver us from the chaos and then there will be food. It's, can God put a table here in the middle of the wilderness? Can he put a table in the middle of the chaos? Um, All of us are going through different kinds of chaos all of the time. For the last 15, 16 months, we've corporately been going through a wilderness and a chaos um, in a way that most of us had never had before altogether. And the promise here, because of course, the question is being asked sarcastically, but implicitly the answer is yes. The promise is that we have a God who can spread a table for us and can feed us in the middle of that, who meets us in the midst of that chaos. Remember that every other God, every other idol, everything else that you could set your hope in, it will demand more and more from you. You know, and it'll demand that you feed it, right? So we, we feed our jobs. We feed our bank accounts. We feed and we feed and we feed until we're on the break of starvation. These things will demand our very life from us. There is only one God who feeds us. There is only one God who gives his body for us. Only one God who gives his life for us. So set your hope on God. Don't forget what he's done for you. That will change your life. That will lead us to be people of obedience. Can we pray? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you you have done more for us than we could possibly recount. You have have done more for us than we can even comprehend. Um, But we are so thankful that you have given us your word um, so we have so much of it written down. So that when it comes time to tell our children, or for that matter, ourselves, the story. We have your word, and and we can open it, and we can see how you are faithful to people who are faithless, and we can see how you sent your son to be faithful in our place, um, and also to bear the penalty for our faithlessness in our place. Uh, It is because of him that we have hope. It is on him that we have set our hope. We give you thanks, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for making us your people. 
We pray in your name. Amen.